Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today we have a bit of a unique show, so it's not following our typical not so deep dive or deep dive structure. It's a bonus, I guess you could say, and it's a follow up to our shareholder meeting that we attended uh, for Boston Omaha. Do you want to explain what Boston Omaha is for yeah. any listeners that don't know? Yeah, Boston Omaha is a small cap conglomerate. There, they don't really have any headquarters in a certain area. They don't have any. They're not in any certain industry, but they own different assets, minority stakes. They're in billboards, fiber to the home, insurance. We go through all that during the discussion, but suffice to say, they're a diversified holding company and the management does a Berkshire type meeting where they go through the business and then do a and a We went to it. They didn't have a recording or anything. So for anyone that is invested in it, we thought it would be interesting to kind of give our thoughts, any little tidbits they gave out about these businesses. Exactly. And before we get to the discussion, we have a new sponsor alert. It is Stream by Mosaic. We're actually quite familiar with the company, uh, but for any listeners that aren't, it is an Stream is an expert interview transcript library. And so uh, basically, if you don't know, there's, uh, and usually it'll be investors, they interview experts on a company or an industry or something like that. And the industries cover everything from TMT to consumers, industrials, real estate, plenty more. Um, if you're invested in any companies, which most of you, I assume, are, there's, I'm sure they have your companies uh, somewhere in there. There's 8,500 uh, more than 8,500 call transcripts altogether, and they provide 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on stream. So basically, you can get really good color on the industry or the company, and sometimes it's ex-executives, sometimes it's just people that really understand the industry well. Um, it's a great way if you are missing it's like a channel check. If you don't, yeah. If you are unsure about some part of a business, there's a great way to do a check on that. It's a great way to get up to speed on some of the nuances of an industry. It's like Phil Fisher's scuttlebutt. It's something that he talked about. That, that was a big part of his investment process. This is a great supplement to anyone's investing process. So uh, if you want to check them out, go to streamrg.com and you can sign up for a 14, uh, a free 14-day trial using promo code CCM. Uh, so go ahead and use that. Now, last mention before we get to the show, this is Steve from 7investing. So uh, as always, you can use our code chitchat at 7investing. This is actually a limited time offer, but uh, use chitchat for your annual subscription to get $50 off. Without further ado, let's get to the discussion. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Today, we're welcomed by Steve Symington. This is a different kind of show structure. It's something we've never really done before. Basically, we all went to the Boston Omaha uh, annual shareholder meeting. uh, And the goal here is to do a follow-up, kind of discuss what the meeting consisted of, what they talked about as far as the businesses go, um, maybe our takeaways, and then we'll we'll do some some thoughts on the business currently and maybe the uh, Boston Omaha as an investment. Uh, but before we get to any of that, I wanted to give some context around the itinerary because some people were really curious what the meeting actually consisted of. So it was in Omaha. They occasionally move it around. I think it's previously uh, swapped between Boston and Omaha, uh, but apparently they're thinking about moving it to different locations. Um, Omaha was really cold in the winter. If anyone wanted, if ever, if anyone was wondering, uh, and they held it at a zoo. So there was, it was like an indoor place, sort of an event center at the zoo. Um, they gave us discounted rates on a hotel, nice hotel. Um, and then Omaha had some really good food. Uh, they had a tour. They gave us a bus tour of the city kind of went sightseeing in Omaha. Am I blanking on anything? Nope. I think that's it. Um, okay. Then we can talk about the meeting, what actually went down there. They did a great presentation, which we can go through. And then they did a Q&A. We didn't transcribe everything. It's kind of tough over, say, like two, three hour period to get everything all down. So hopefully we made a few notes. 
we can talk about what we uh you know thought in general but first we're going to go through these each segments here we're going to start with someone and then move around just through different topics about what they talked about and then about boston omaha's business but first we're going to just do a general one so thoughts on the meeting in general we'll start with you steve oh man um i was super impressed just just meeting them uh adam and alex in person was fantastic uh i i think just to see how kind of calm and collected they are um speaking with confidence about their various businesses and and you know not just broad like kind of well you know you can tell when you're speaking when you're speaking to management who doesn't know um just the the ins and outs of every piece of the business um and you could tell, you know, no matter what question they threw at them. And there were some, some, there's some like slow balls, right? Slid, but they, they also had some pretty, pretty tough questions that they answered without hesitation and uh, to everyone's satisfaction. So it was kind of neat to, to listen to them. Um, they're obviously just exceptionally sharp. Um, really nice to be able to meet uh, so many people that, uh, you know, not only management and a bunch of the board members. I think I ended up sitting in the family section or something. I was talking to, <laughs> you were talking. you were in the family section. Yeah, like all the board members start standing up around me, and it turns out I was sitting. I think next to Alex's wife. He's like, he's my wife. Yeah, <laughs> like he's joking with me about it. Like uh, afterward, but um, yeah, it was it was really interesting to to kind of get that perspective. Uh, just such a. Um, such a, a kind of an intimate setting, you know, there were there, they said it was the most people they've ever had an annual meeting, but there weren't really that many people there, a couple hundred folks, probably what, uh, so it, it was really neat. And, um, yeah, I do wish, you know, we could have been recording stuff, but obviously you no know, recording devices allowed, you know, they're not yeah, allowed yeah. to do that. So, um, but yeah, some, some great, uh, connections and, uh, and just to see their wisdom at work was, was fun. Yeah, maybe we could pitch them to do a video, just a video recording, you know, put that online. Uh, but I'm not yeah, sure yeah. how much. They, I yeah. know that defeats the purpose of this uh, follow up. That's true. That's true. <laughs> They're helping us. Yeah. Now, now we can yeah. provide the good info. What, what about you, Ryan? Did you have any uh, other thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. That's my first shareholder meeting that I've been to in person. Also, first time in Omaha. Was that your first time in Omaha, Steve? It was. Uh, it was. I, it, it's funny because it felt like uh the weather was worse than it was when i left montana like even now i'm like wow it is windy and really cold i didn't bring my my heavy jacket but i wish i would have but i liked omaha actually uh pleasantly kind of surprised by the the city and and uh you know a lot going on there and yeah, uh, you know obviously a lot of money flowing through there but sort of in a uh a, a sneaky kind of way like you don't realize you know, the assets that are flowing through that town and in the business they have. And, and, uh, wish I would have gotten to see the zoo though. That was a, that was a no go for me with the snow. I know. I know it was too cold. We took a little lap and we're like, uh, this is not, uh, <laughs> not, not today, not today, but and, I don't I mean, know. Other than that, I, I really enjoyed, I, I guess it really, it's nice to talk to or kind of see someone present, the businesses in person, it kind of gives me different perspective on the business. And it reminds you that like they are crucial, I guess, to the investment because they're the ones that are uh, going out and acquiring the businesses. And so it's kind of a people's business where they are taking ownership in other people's companies. So it's important to see kind of how they work together or work well with others. Um, and yeah, I, I thought the whole event was pretty well run. What about you? Uh, I, yeah, I agree with what you guys said. I also liked how they gave a lot of candor on some of their minority investments. Um, we know about DreamFinders Homes, that's publicly invested now, so you can know about that. But the other stuff like Crescent Bank, Logic Real Estate, and some of the other stuff, they gave a lot of candor about what they're earning from that and kind of how much they're earning, at least from off of their original investments. So I thought that was good. They're not afraid. Oh, I guess they, they don't hide anything. At least I don't think it seems like whenever they ask something, they're going to be open about it and say, all right, this was a mistake or this didn't do that well. This one did extremely well. I think they talk about how logic, even though it was a tiny investment, has been their best performing asset by far. Um, so that was good to hear. Uh, but besides that, let's move on to. So this is a conglomerate a bit. So we're going to go through some of the different parts of the businesses, kind of what we think about them. First one is going to be billboards. Then we're going to move to fiber insurance. And then some of their minority investments. And then the exciting part, 
which is the Sky Harbor SPAC. We'll probably talk about that. That's the most exciting. It has the most pieces. But first, we're going to talk about billboards, and we'll kick it off with Ryan. What were your thoughts on that part of the business and any updates from it? Yeah, I mean, well, I should also mention that uh, this you are more of a Boston Omaha shareholder, but I wanted to go to the meeting as well, so I bought a share uh, and, and went. Um, but getting some color on the business, the billboards were, uh, it's interesting to see how what what seems like such a boring business could be so valuable and they said uh, that they're approaching a million dollars in cash flow a month uh, from that business and they projected four to seven percent organic growth um, i didn't really have any huge takeaways on it I, I guess that probably wasn't the part of the business that i liked the most i think i was the most fond of the fiber component but um i don't know do you guys have any takeaways on the billboards we went on our tour we got oh, to we see saw some. One. We saw one. Yeah, Steve. Any thoughts on the the billboard stuff? Yeah, uh, billboards are are one of those kind of sneaky outperformers, right? It's it's kind of funny. You look at it, even in my portfolio. There's some really relatively unexciting companies on the surface that seem to be some of the biggest outperformers. And billboards are kind of neat because um, they. You know, they're they're relatively low overhead. It's a super fragmented market. There's a lot of room uh, for them to strike strategic acquisitions when the price is right. And they say they won't just overpay, you know, for the sake of pulling in new assets. Um, but billboards are, are just super, super interesting because they tend to re- uh, earn favorable um, returns on equity capital, right? And uh, we're kind of seeing that now as the cash flows start to to come back and, and outdoor advertising in general is one of those really kind of underestimated niches and Boston Omaha. That's one of the things they do really well. Uh, Adam and Alex is they recognize these, these niches that they can kind of muscle into without a lot of resistance. And, uh, you know, so you've got this, what is it? A $7 billion market in the United States overall for billboards and outdoor ads. And uh, super, super fragmented, bunch of little tiny operators that are all regional and uh, they can just kind of gradually buy them up when the price is right. And, um, you know, the established industry players tend to benefit from supply constraints because most of the meaningful locales uh, for billboards will only allow a limited number kind of crowd in their streets. So uh, that's why they love the market. And and, uh, so it's no surprise to kind of see, you know, it's, it's this sort of bread and butter uh, once they're in, uh, the the returns are are pretty healthy. Yeah, and I think a lot of people talk about this with Boston Omaha, but I love how billboards can kind of be the base mm-hmm. where they're generating, say, twelve million a month, or sorry, twelve million a year in cash off of these now, and possibly bump that up slightly over time, and then make these tuck in acquisitions. They actually just did one, and I believe it was in Oklahoma and Kansas, where they're going to make maybe. They said don't expect them to be as aggressive as they once were, right? If I'm remembering that correctly, they used to have, you know, they, at the start, they made some aggressive investments in billboards, but now they said it's going to be, be small tucking ones and just yeah. maybe slightly increasing the number of faces they have. But I do love how, I mean, this isn't going to be a high growth business. It's not going to be hyper growth. Um, they're not going to have insane levels of pricing power. You can't just triple the number of faces you have without buying any, but I mean, it seems like extremely dependable cash flow, and hopefully over time, this can be one of the things that can help them, you know, invest in the fiber, which I guess we're going to talk about next. But also just provide that cash flow, so they don't have to raise uh, and do the common stock offerings as much as they have been. This yeah. was their this was their original business, wasn't it? This is first big one, yeah. Okay. Right? Am I wrong? Am I oh, wait, wait, no, oh, There was like yeah. a food place too, wasn't there? <laughs> there was like a tiny <laughs> yeah. thing, little retail. Yeah. The, well, there was that, and the, it was the they basically transitioned the business. You know, they they reincorporated it and, and renamed it Boston Omaha for their hometowns. And yeah, billboards was kind of their their basis. And what happened uh, was they put a lot of money into billboard acquisitions. I think it was like even 2018 alone, it was like $140 million they they put to work in acquisitions because they said there were, quote, an abnormally large number, I think uh, is the, the terms they used a couple of years ago, uh, abnormally large number of billboard assets that came to market. So they took advantage of it. You know, they raised capital and, and did some share issuances at, at, I think, above book value or at or above. And and yeah. uh yeah, yeah so um that that's that was their first big one so healthy yeah of course 
Yeah, it looks like uh, they have a nice little thing on their website. Just to give a reference on that. Yeah, in 2018, they really bumped up. They made an $84 million acquisition and a $38 million and a $16 million acquisition for billboards that year. But yep. every year they've done these tiny ones that have just tucked in on that. And if anyone's interested, they do have a great overview. It's a nice little chart with all these bubbles. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Uh, to see all the different types of businesses, it's on on bostonomaha.com. But let's move nice. on to fiber. What's the next one? Fiber. That's the exciting part. That is the one that everyone loves. Um, I think maybe I'll just give an overview and then see what you guys uh, think of it. So the update they have is they have about 20,000 customers in fiber right now, and they believe there's a ton of room to reinvest uh, more, say, growth capital, unlike billboards. And yeah. then they say that their favorite targets, they're not in, say, big cities competing with the big dogs. Uh, they're trying to go after rural places that are more DSL and satellite homes. Those are their favorite targets to replace with. And then they're, they basically track each dollar because I think someone asks them, or maybe they talked about this themselves, um, about how they track, you know, how they do it or how successful the fiber business is. But they track each dollar invested into fiber basically for a return on invested capital. Pretty standard one. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, can understand that one with all the big cable businesses out there. It's very similar. And then the other thing I would mention is they're starting what's it called? Fiber Fast Homes. Yeah. Um, I think that's the name. And they're partnering with DFH, which is DreamFinder Homes. That's the company they own a big stake in that's a home builder to hopefully do new fiber builds for the homes they're building. So that's a partnership that just started and hopefully it can grow the amount of customers they have in fiber. Vertical um, integration. Ver uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, Steve, do you have any thoughts on the fiber business? I don't know. What were your thoughts about it after the meeting? Yeah, um, there's just a lot... Uh, you know, in, in fiber to the home, they you know, they raised some cash. I think it was. I'm I'm just poking it up. Back in April, uh, I think it was the last time I wrote about that. Uh, when they actually sold, it was a, a few million shares, uh, right about where they they trade now. Actually, maybe a little twenty five bucks a piece, so maybe a little lower. But um, they raised cash to kind of help fund that growth because they had identified uh, one some opportunities to make some acquisitions and billboards, which we saw them follow through on. Uh, but two, they said even in fiber to the home, you know, they were looking at incremental investments for diving into those areas, right? And fiber is one of those really interesting businesses because um, it, it's one of those things that, you know, the the ceiling for the speeds that fiber can support is much higher than even uh, cable. And, you know, DSL is just like pulling teeth now for anyone who still has it. You transition even to cable from DSL and that's a world different, but fiber is a completely different level and the, the ceiling is so high. And uh, one of the things they hammered home during the meeting was that, um, you know, bandwidth requirements are growing rapidly. And that's not all going to be served by, you know, uh, SpaceX's like internet, like satellite service. What's that? Starlink. Uh, there, there's only so much you can do, at least at this point in time. And the ceiling is so much higher for fiber and uh, the demand for these houses. You know, once they have a house, that's the other thing they mentioned. Once they have a neighborhood hooked up and ran, they're not going back. Like they're not getting rid of their fiber. And one of the things that they're getting from this partnership uh, with DFH and, and uh, you know, fast fiber is, is basically you're going to have these new neighborhoods that are just pre-built with fiber included. And uh, it's, it's just sort of a, a captive audience and really, really healthy cash flows uh, after you kind of put up that upfront investment. But, you know, it, it's a certain, like they said, they're not going to go in and compete with already permeated like fiber networks. Like there's way too many places in this country, little rural areas, they're still being served by satellite and DSL. And they said one of the favorite places, uh, one of their favorite things to do is drive through neighborhoods and spot satellite dishes. They're like, yeah, we like this market. And uh, <laughs> because satellite internet stinks and, and uh, you know, from most offers anyway. And so that it's, it's kind of, kind of fun to watch because this was their third line of business, right? After surety insurance and billboards, uh, fiber was the one that they kind of branched into after that. And that only just happened in the last year and a half or so. Yeah. Let me just give a reference on that just because I have this up. They first bought the first one, Airbeam in March of 2020. Wow. Right during the middle, March 10th, 2020. I think they did joke about how they closed that right when the world was shutting down. And then they bought <laughs> yep. Utah Broadband in December of last year. So this is a relatively new business for them, but they think they can reinvest a lot of capital. Uh, Ryan, what were your thoughts on fiber? 
Well, something they mentioned, I think, in the shareholder letter is that they really like the the economics are very attractive of the business, and that kind of it's pretty intuitive, I guess. But they said, I think, they get a thirty percent yield on their uh, on the fiber that they lay, and I remember them saying basically the only constraint right now, and and they also seemed very excited about fiber. They seemed like that was the one place they look forward to like investing in moving forward. Um, and they, they said the only constraint was labor, if I'm not mistaken, it's yeah. just getting, getting enough people out there to build as fast as they can. Yep. Um, it seems kind of like a greenfield opportunity. There's just so much market out there to build. Yeah. And the best thing about fiber is it's really easy to track. I believe in the 10 Q they just outline, they separate how much capital they invest in each segment or each business segment each quarter. So, I mean, you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt because we have to get the returns of that eventually. But typically with fiber, it seems like the more they invest in that, if that increases, I mean, it's, it's almost not, you know, you can't guarantee anything, but it's, it's pretty easy to track how much of uh, capital you're investing in fiber. You're going to almost get a guaranteed return on that, which I like the dependability of that. The other thing I found funny was someone asked, I think like what got you in, get, what got you into fiber to begin with, I think at the meeting. And they were like, well, uh, we had a competitor down the road in Lincoln that was doing really well with it. And which is a company we're super familiar with. And the chairman happened to be there and uh, yeah, it was kind of, they just stole stole a good idea from their competitors, I guess. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to insurance. Who's starting with that one? Uh, Steve. Yeah. They have, uh, I don't know, maybe you want to give an overview of what, because they, they're not like typical insurance. Do you want to give a slight overview of that? And then we can talk about what anything they said there. Right. So uh, surety insurance is one of those things. So when you think about a, a surety bonds, for example, like a licensed and bonded contractor, uh, or insurance to guarantee rent payments by consumers and private businesses. Like these are the, the kinds of insurance uh, that we're talking about here. The um, Boston Omaha has put capital to work. I, I think as of last year, it was like they, they'd only put like 30 or 40 million into to general indemnity group. GIG is the surety insurance subsidiary that they have. And GIG is comprised of a licensed carrier, which is uh, UCS, United capital, casualty and surety insurance, and a few surety only agencies. But uh, what was interesting at the meeting was they mentioned, um, you know, they, that was one of, they were asked about kind of their mistakes and some of the assumptions. And they said, you know, it was a lot harder. We kind of assumed it would be a lot easier to uh, generate uh, you know, policy originations kind of by going through this uh, agency process. So they're, they're, they've kind of shifted how they, they approach that, but um, you know, the the surety insurance business remains uh, potentially huge. It's a it's a massive market uh, for them, and uh, it, it's one of those things that uh, it, it's it also kind of has really healthy um, loss ratios and and returns on capital. I mean, I think the the industry broadly averages like a thirty percent loss ratio, right? So where you get into like auto and home, you're looking at like seventy percent loss ratios, and uh, you also command higher agent commissions between like thirty and forty percent. Um, so they can kind of collect on that. Uh, that's like triple the auto insurance market. Um, so really attractive unit economics. Um, but we're looking at like a six billion dollar market here in the U.S. And I mean, I don't think we're going to be looking at them expanding beyond the U.S. anytime soon because there's so much kind of low hanging fruit here. Uh, but it should they choose to do it globally. It's it's an absolutely enormous market. And, uh, you know, they just continue to strategically put capital to work as they need to expanding GIG. But I think that's one of those places where they said, yeah, we've made some mistakes along the way. Um, but it continues to be, you know, a, a profitable business with relatively healthy underwriting. So um, not, not too much exciting going on on the insurance side, right? At this yeah. point, a lot of the capital is kind of going into other opportunities. Uh, like billboard acquisitions and you know fiber expansion, and then the the Yellowstone SPAC, and they've had their attention kind of busy in a lot of different you know a lot of irons in the fire, but um, not too much excitement on surety insurance, but a uh, really healthy kind of core business uh, for them, and also you know something that can allow them to to collect um, you know an insurance float and be able to kind of invest some of that at relatively low overhead capital too. So 
Yeah. And that should hopefully get easier and easier to do at, at right. scale. That's kind of the advantage of the conglomerate. As everyone knows, uh, everyone makes, whenever you bring up the insurance and the conglomerate, everyone makes the Berkshire Hathaway comparison. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but that part is, is fairly similar. Uh, yeah. Ryan, did you have any thoughts on insurance? No, not, not, I, I don't have much more color I can add than what Steve provided. Um, I guess it was probably an area that they seemed less enthusiastic about deploying capital to, um, yeah. as opposed to like their other opportunities. That's yeah. True. And that, that's been kind of the case, um, for the last couple of years too, right. They'll, they'll put, they'll, they'll deploy capital. Um, but I think there were so many ripe opportunities to expand, you know, a into those other businesses, fiber and billboard acquisitions that, um, it's just one of those places where they've consciously, uh, put uh, less capital to work than they have in, in other, other markets, but, uh, still a really huge ceiling, uh, for what they can accomplish there. And, uh, you know, just, just c- collecting those policies and, and it remains kind of the challenge, right. Uh, for them on the insurance side, but, uh, didn't focus as much, I think on insurance during the meetings, uh, or didn't emphasize it as much anyway. They, they, they did have some, yeah. some feedback during that, that part of it, but. Yeah. They only talked about it maybe 10 minutes or so. Yeah. They, they, the, a lot of other stuff was more, uh, more exciting, I guess maybe for reference, the only thing I had took away was they did share that they have about 40 million in assets at the insurance entity with about 45% of that in equities. They can give a reference maybe for people about the size of that. It's still a fairly small part of the business. And they also said they, you know, they talked about the struggles to expand it, how it's still a good business, but they they made a lot of mistakes, but they they still believe that they're gonna have some operating leverage um when they scale, but it just might take longer than they thought. Yep. Um, all right, let's move on to the next one. What is that? Uh, it's the, uh, the what should we call it? The all outside the investments, investments, all the minority ones. Yeah, Ryan, do you want to talk about that? We can kind of, there's a few of them. Um, yeah. Ryan, you want to kick up anything you highlighted from that? Well, this is the part where, uh, this is what surprised me is that it kind of shocked me the depth of their business and how they've grown to be much more than they used uh, than they were even a year ago which was they had all these different minority investments and some of them it's not just like i think they have a public equity portfolio um that they it's not disclosed but steve tried to ask steve yeah. tried, that was steve's question <laughs> they wanted yeah. to know what was in there but uh yeah. i don't the i guess the things they had several real estate investments i think that are centered in vegas if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, that was kind of interesting. And the way they're tying it together with the asset management firm that they've started, um, which I think has outside funding or has- They said that it might. They said it might. Okay. I mean, it's just showing that that there are much more opportunities than deploying capital just in the businesses that we've already talked about. There's tons of opportunities out there. I don't know. There wasn't any- huge takeaway for me. I guess they have the Dreamfinder home stake, but uh, that's a public company now. So you can kind of monitor that. Isn't there some rule that they're not, like if they cross a certain amount of money invested in the public equities, they have to disclose what they are? Yeah. hundred million is when they have to file a 13F. So um, that's, uh, and I kind of asked them because I watched that. I really want them to file 13F so I can see what they invest in. Um, you know, so far to date, you know, you look at their uh, their quarterly filings, and and the most color they'll give you is that their equity portfolio is primarily invested in mid to large cap stocks, right? So fine, you know, they're relatively conservative in, in their investing, but uh, that was part of the reason that I asked uh, them that question during the Q and A. You know, I, I noticed, um, you know, they actually released the uh, the the 10Q, the third quarter report, while I was in the air. And, uh, and I was reading through it in the airport on the way there. And I noticed that their marketable equity securities line in that report, it, it stood at, um, at the end of third quarter, um, had a fair value of $80.3 million with a cost basis of 31.3 million, right? Which, okay. Like that's interesting because that that's really different from their end of 2020 year figures, which, um, if memory serves, the fair value of their equity securities were about 64 million with a cost basis of about 68 million. 
And I was like, okay, so they're sitting on some modest losses on their equity portfolio. So it was, uh, it was like, where, where'd that flip come from? It seems like the cost basis went down, but the fair value went way up. And uh, so I asked them, you know, kind of their perspective, not only on what's the current state of things, but also uh, just how they think about putting um, their cash to work and equity securities. And uh, that, that was my question uh, because I saw that. So they, they kind of indicated um, the big change in the cost basis column was uh, as a result of 40 act restrictions, right? And that's 40 is in 1940 act restrictions uh, under which they were required to sell a, a huge chunk of their DreamFinders home stock, right? Before they took it public, there were some 40 act restrictions that, so they had to sell. Um, so that was kind of the big changes in their equity securities line. And um they kind of still, they own a huge chunk of DreamFinders homes anyway, since it went public, but I think they had to sell it. And then they re they bought back like another 25 million. They, they allocated uh, at the time of the IPO. Um, so yeah, some, some kind of fluctuations there, but uh, I mean, these guys were both money managers when they met. Right. And they were working, you know, they, they know a thing or two about investing in the stock market and, you know, managing portfolios. And of course, you know, uh, Alex, one of them still has one, basically, right? Yes. There's the Magnolia Fund, which is where they hold most of their shares of Boston Omaha stock, right? And that's Adam's kind of vehicle. So they kind of unwound uh, Alex's. Alex Buffett Rosick, remember, he, he's great. He's Warren Buffett's great grandnephew. And you can see, you mentioned earlier when they bring up the, you know, it was inevitable. Someone always brings up the Berkshire comparison. You can see him wins a little bit like, ah, like it's, it's so apples to oranges. That's like, uh, I, I forgot the, the analogy he used comparing um, the sizes of their business because it's just like they're a drop in an ocean uh, compared to that. But someone asked him like, yeah, I know you guys build, uh, you know, your business a similar way that Warren Buffett does with Berkshire Hathaway. And Adam is like, Warren who? <laughs> so of course everybody chuckles at that, but um, yeah, I, I'd really love for their uh, equity securities um, portfolio, marketable equity securities to go above hundred million, because that's the trigger uh, when you get to kind of see their portfolio and kind of see how they invest in, and uh, maybe see some of the more interesting companies that, that maybe uh, if it's not just a, you know, they hold a bunch of FANG stocks and, and a bunch of Berkshire Hathaway or something <laughs> in their portfolio. So uh, yeah, if you can't tell I'm enthusiastic about that. You think they'll sell it down to keep it below a hundred million? I don't think they would for the sake of not disclosing. I don't think that's the goal. Just the uh, 1940 Act, right? That's the only Yeah, one. well, there's the 40 Act restrictions that kind of forced them to sell certain positions prior to that DreamFinders IPO. And and I think that's what he said. Uh, if memory serves, I had some light notes, but... Um, it's a bit complicated what they had to do. Yeah, I was trying to piece mm -hmm. that. Yeah, but. so I, I think it's only a matter of time as they have more money to put to work in stocks. Uh, it's going to be a, a, you know, a fantastic sort of diversified place uh, for them to just continue to generate shareholder value when they deem it fit, right? You know, first and foremost, Boston Omaha is a story of responsible capital allocation. And, uh, you know, so they put money to work wherever they think it's the best value. And uh, those values and the opportunities kind of fluctuate um, from quarter to quarter and month to month. And, and if they have cash and they think this is the best place to put it, that's what they'll do. So I, I like watching them kind of go to work because they are busy. Yeah. 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 And any other thoughts on the minority investments like Crescent Bank, Logic, or what are they calling it? Boston Omaha Asset Management? No, uh, I, I think uh, it's interesting to watch those minority investments kind of kind of blow up. Right. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, I think it was logic that you mentioned was maybe their biggest return. Was that right? Yeah. I have the, I have the note here. They said it's a tiny investment, but they have a 500% return on their stake in earnings already. So yes. And that's just in earnings. That's going to continue to, to, to build. So um, pretty impressive this early, you know, it's not like Boston Omaha is an old company where you could say 500% return over 20 years. Like that's, you know, it's something they've achieved over just a few pretty short years. And uh, I, I think it's kind of fun to watch. You know, I remember thinking about that DreamFinders Homes, what was it, a five, seven percent stake or something like that. But then DreamFinders goes public and they pile even more money into it. And uh, just looking at DreamFinders, whoops, what is it, DFH? Yeah, I yeah. think is the ticker. Um, you know, right now, market cap of 1.6 billion, right? And they did not put 
um, you know, their return on dream finders is pretty healthy and growing. And, and, uh, so they, they're going to win with a lot of these minority stakes. Uh, not everyone's going to turn out like they'd hoped, but you know, you put a reasonably or a modest amount of capital to work, uh, and with a really, really high ceiling and they have opportunities that like we don't yeah. as individual investors. I think that's important to know too, right? Because, you know, if they were sitting at home and, you know, stock picking, like I do, for example, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there, but they have access uh, as people with a lot of capital that they can potentially put to work and lots of different avenues to raise capital if need be when the right opportunities pop up uh, to generate outsized returns that smaller individual investors just simply can't. So that's that's kind of cool to watch. And that's part of the reason that, you know, it's a company that I can feel good about holding shares in is because they're so good at what they do. And they've proven over and over again, that they're really, really great deal makers and great capital allocators. Yeah, that's definitely the benefit. I, I think of as well with these minority investments is you can get exposure um, as an investor like us into these deals that you would never have a chance of doing. Um, mm -hmm. All right. I think that covers it for minority investments. And I think that's going to take us into the advertisement break. So let's hit that. And then afterwards, we're going to talk Sky Harbor spec, which is exciting valuation, any worries and what we're excited about for them going forward. All right, let's hit the ad break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. All right, welcome back. We've covered the basics of Boston Omaha's business. Hopefully everyone got a good overview and maybe some tidbits from the meeting. Next, we're going to hit the big exciting deal that they just did, which is the Sky Harbor SPAC. Um, I guess I have the one to start off here. So I'll give some notes I took from the deal. If anyone's interested, they do have a big prospectus and they do have a website because it is a SPAC and it is a bit complicated. Um, but either way, just to kind of sum it up without going all through the intricacies, there's a SPAC that Boston Omaha sponsored. They're also investing. Uh, okay. So they have the SPAC. The SPAC is doing a deal. I, I laugh because SPACs are always so complicated, but the SPAC is doing a deal with a company called Sky Harbor, um, which is a airplane private jet hangar startup, I guess. They're pretty early stage. And then Boston Omaha Excel itself is investing in that as well. So Boston Omaha has exposure through being the sponsor of the SPAC, and they're also investing in Sky Harbor um, privately. So overall, Boston Omaha is investing in Sky Harbor and Sky Harbor is going public to help them fund it. Uh, but what is Sky Harbor? Um, Steve, you can probably help us out here, but uh, they are an airplane hangar, uh, almost, not out of reach, but like- They buy the hangers. They buy the hangar and they, and they rent them out. Their yeah, and, and rich people store their plane there. Um, they say they're sitting on about 1 million square feet of potential campuses or existing campuses. Uh, the prospectus that they do have, it hasn't closed yet, and it's going to give them $160 million in financing. Um, part of that is bonds that are not going to come due it for decades that are at 4.27%. They talk about that. They love the funding advantage that it has. They plan to raise the rents of these over time. They think pricing power of the hangers is going to be huge because with ultra rich clients, that's fairly easy since you're, you know, they're not really worried about pricing. 
Boston Omaha itself has invested $55 million into this business. And they said they're going to be invested in it no matter what. I think that was a very important point because a lot of times with SPACs, you can kind of be, some guys can be, I guess investors can be flaky for lack of a better word, if they want um, and leave it. But Boston Omaha says they're guaranteed they're going to do this thing. And then the goal overall is to get to 20 hangers. Um, I don't know if they have a date on that. I'm assuming it's within like four or five years. I hope that gave a good overview. It's a pretty early stage business. So we're going to see what it looks like over time. But Steve, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so Sky Harbor is really interesting. And at first, it sort of surprises you. You know, they, they, they sort of broadly refer to themselves as a private aviation infrastructure specialist, right? And, um, but, but more specifically, uh, Sky Harbor wants to build a nationwide network of home-basing solutions for business jets, basically. They realize that there's sort of this really significant growth in, um, in business aviation and jets that people are purchasing, but there was really not the infrastructure to store them, uh, to manage them, to basically house these increasingly larger jets too. We're like the size of the jets is increasing, not only a higher number being purchased, but uh, there are a lot of jets when they look at, you know, aerial photos of these airports that are just literally sitting outside, uh, you know, just on little side runways and stuff. And, and they don't want that to happen, especially with a lot of these nicer jets. And, and um, so, you know, they, they secure land at key U.S. airfields, and then they develop campuses of private hangars for business aviation. And they generate recurring revenue uh, by leasing those hangars and then managing the campuses and taking care of basically everything they need to for these jets. There's huge demand for this. And, and uh, you know, in, in retrospect, you look back and be like, of course, this is the kind of business Boston Omaha is involved in because it's, it, it seems so niche, but there's huge growing demand for it. Um, and so it was funny. I think one of the, uh, the, the Sky Harbor uh, founders, who's an old, former fighter pilot and he was walking around handing out uh, little yeah. flyers for for sky harbor and you know, probably a good place to you know <laughs> yeah muster up some business be like this is what we're all about but uh, they seem pretty excited about it and i think um the the spec proceeds basically um provide uh in a planned bond issuance would be enough to finance the development of its first 20 locations uh that they already kind of have secured and um, <clears throat> they're targeting, I think, 50 locations uh, to start. Okay. Um, so they have basically the SPAC will provide them uh, enough capital to, to get those first 20 locations completed. And then they're targeting 50, but they say even then fit those first 50 locations uh, represent under 2% of uh, all of the country's uh, NPA, NPIAS uh, airfields. Uh, so, I mean... Uh, again, huge <laughs> sky's the limit, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if Matt was here, he'd kill me for that terrible pun, but um, yeah, so uh, the, it's, it's a big market and uh, they can, they can kind of, you know, some first mover status uh, for this, a really, really interesting company and an interesting place to put the money to work. So um, a lot of capital required again, uh, but once it's there recurring revenue, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, it's, or God, right? I mean, it's like right up their alley. It, it's kind of mm -hmm. like a Modi business, you know. Yep. There isn't, but it's I'm niche, wrong. also niche. Yeah, my I there was a small part of me when I saw this back deal or that presentation that they put out that was like that kind of worried that it was like other SPACs where there were a lot of rosy projections because right. they, were, they only had one that was fully operational. Um, but then you know, there's so many SPACs out there that are like we have one now, but we're going for 50, whatever bases. And so part of me was like that, but then that I saw they had the financing for it. I kind of, uh, mm -hmm. kind of got to know management, I guess, through that meeting because they talked about them. Um, and then they talked about the economics and kind of how moody it can be. And I was like, all right, this, this is, this is a deal I can get behind. Yeah. And the best yeah. thing about this is it'll be a public company. Um, yeah. right. So you'll be, it'll be easier to track them. It's not like, uh, one of their internal businesses where you're going to take their word for it. We're going to see if they're going to make that progress. I'm sure it's not going to be overnight. This stuff's physical infrastructure. It's not like a software program, but get more visibility. Yeah, definitely get more visibility um, on their funding, their burn rates, stuff like that. I think it's exciting. Um, 
it's exciting for sure. I mean, Stevie gave a better overview of the business. I think uh, I, I always struggle to to describe it, but it's not. I mean, it's more exciting than like billboards and stuff. And I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing. But it's, <laughs> it's a low bar, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I, from a return standpoint, we'll see if that could be better. But yeah. either either way, I think it's exciting what uh, what, what they're doing. Something yeah. that is Go interesting ahead. is that between Sky Harbor, Dreamfinder Homes, and if they're uh, public or their their uh, public equity investments cross a hundred million, you're going to get a lot of visibility into where their assets are placed. And you're yeah. going to know how those businesses are doing um, beyond just Boston Omaha's commentary on them, which is kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah. And in this, we're going to talk about this in a minute, I think, when we when we touch on valuation, but it's hard to value. There's so many moving yeah. pieces, right? And and uh, there's, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in a sec, but uh, I think one of the, the things that people might be surprised by uh, and, and pleasantly surprised by is uh, as the sponsor, right? So it's it's Yellowstone Acquisition Company is the SPAC uh, merger vehicle that Boston Omaha formed in order to to then find identify a target uh, to merge with and then uh, take it public that way. But um, as of uh, I think it was late July, maybe. Uh, when the SPAC was the merger was initially announced, I said, "Okay, we found a merger target. It's Sky Harbor." Um, in, in the their their quarterly report, there uh, they reminded investors that they basically had invested about seven point eight million dollars, a little under eight million dollars, for three point six million common shares of Yellowstone, right, and seven point five million warrants to buy the shares. Uh, of the merger vehicle at 1150 a piece, right? So once it reaches 1150, they can they can execute those warrants. Or I mean, above that, you can execute the warrants, right? Um, but just the common shares and the warrants they have, if executed, would be worth over 100 million. You know, for a, a relatively modest upfront investment, basically for acting as a facilitator, a sponsor for the SPAC deal and bringing them public. Um, and that's uh, that that also excludes, I think. Um, what did they say? Uh, I need to, to look back here. Uh, $45 million backstop. Uh, basically, they've, they've insured, assured that there'll be at least $150 million in cash and securities that go to Sky Harbor at closing, right? And uh, then there's an $80 million private activity bond finance. Those are the sources of the first 20. Um, but yeah, uh, $138 million of cash held in trust from Yellowstone, $55 million additional investment by Boston Omaha is what they're putting in there, right? Yeah. So, um, Hundred million just for the money that they put in for the initial shares and warrants, and then they're pouring uh, quite a bit more cash into this business. Uh, but it's going to be a pretty hefty stake, uh, you know, a hefty value, and I think a return on that value just for simply being the spec sponsor. And that's assuming that that uh, Sky Harbor doesn't turn out to, you know, if they execute on their growth story. Uh, it could be really, really, really interesting uh, to see uh, the stake that Boston Omaha holds. Uh, as the owner of Yellowstone Acquisition Company. Yeah, yeah. Over the next five years, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And that does kind of segue us into the valuation discussion. I'll give mm -hmm. a bit of a overview here. We got market cap, as we're recording, of about $852 million. So when Steve is saying, uh, you know, north of $100 million, that's a pretty sizable chunk of their market value. Uh, let's kick things off with you, though, Steve. How do you think about the valuation with Boston Omaha? I know you said it's complicated, <laughs> and you laugh, yeah. but uh, what are your uh, thoughts? So I've had some pretty interesting conversations with uh, members at Seven Investing on our Discord forum about this because they say, you know, how do you, you know, they're trading at this price to earnings ratio. I'm like, oh boy, that's that's not going to be a very useful metric right now. And they say, well, what about book value? I'm like, well, that would be normally for a, a financial holding company. You, know, you go you you go over to book value and say, okay, it's trading at 1.2 times price to book. Like that's pretty attractive. I do that with Markel or something. You know, you could say, wow, it's actually looking pretty right. good. Uh, Markel's another financial holding company that does something similar way, just larger than Boston Omaha, a lot smaller than Berkshire Hathaway. But the problem is, um, you know, what metric do you use to try and figure out how to value Boston Omaha? And <laughs> I don't think you can really focus on any one metric. Um, you know, I usually I'd say book value, but that's not the case because there's so many moving pieces and so many of what, uh, 
<laughs> what Adam Peterson joked during the uh, the Q and A portion when uh, a fellow that we also had dinner with, Alex, one of our uh, friends uh, at at the, the the meeting, asked him the question. Well, what was it? It was something to the effect of, you know, oh yeah, what price or what metric would you use to determine to buy back Boston Omaha shares? Right? Is that the? So he asked that, and uh, they politely declined. You know, they said, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna tell you like how we would determine. Uh, because that, that, that opens up a whole other can of worms about people either following suit and, and sort of this, uh, self-defeating, um, thing by telling people, yes, at this point, you know, but there's so many moving parts. Um, I hate, like, I feel like I'm beating around the bush because I don't think there's any easy way to value Boston Omaha right now. You can come up with this kind of sum of parts valuation, which I think is sort of the way you do it. Uh, to come up with a roundabout uh, value for the business. But even then, um, you know, I think you change a couple inputs and your range of potential values can vary pretty widely. So coming up with a, you know, it's kind of like coming up with price targets for any any other publicly traded stock, right? That's, it's tricky. Um, so I think you'll spend a long time coming up with a maybe unreliable uh, figure with uh, a lot of the accounting I think that goes into their deals. That's what's really complicating this is that they have warrants to account for and they have the SPAC that's about to go public and they have their DreamFinder stake. And then they have uh, you know, a bunch of other um, depreciation and amortization uh, and you know stuff for the billboard acquisitions that they're kind of riding off that way. And, and Adam referred to those, Adam Peterson, the co-CEO, co-chair, referred to them with their CFO sitting in the front seat, mind you, uh, front row rather uh, he referred to them as accounting fictions <laughs> he kind of yeah. glanced at him like uh, yeah, it frustrates him because they seem to skew the business to the downside uh in the near term and um you know that's it's there's just a lot of uh warrants for this back transaction and dream finders i think that are currently being listed as liabilities i think that was another thing they mentioned um the warrants for sky harbor I believe are treated being treated as like a 35 million liability on the balance sheet, but they're actually worth like 65 million. So that's a hundred million dollar swing right there. If you just take it at face value and look at their balance sheet. So um, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. What do you guys think? I, I mean, some of the parts is probably, I guess the best solution. Yeah. I like billboards. I think it's pretty easy. They just give the reference about 12 million in cash flow a month. You can probably put, I don't know, 200 million on that. That's very simple business. And to sure. reference, you, you talk about the depreciation. They said they have depreciated $41 million off their balance sheet so far. And the majority of that so far has been billboards. Mm -hmm. Over time, it's going to be more fiber. Um, but that yes. does show the billboards aren't getting 41 million. Like they're such a stable asset that the depreciation is definitely overstated. Um, I think billboards, fiber is more difficult. You maybe could do something on a per customer comparing to what uh, public companies trading at a trade at, but that's also difficult because they do have the partnership to expand this really quickly. So I'm not sure exactly the growth rate on that. Um, DFH is easy to value. You kind of just look at what it is valued at. Uh, I think once the SPAC clears, that'll clear things up about what that is worth. Yeah, so that'll, that'll be nice. nice. But besides that, I think it's very tough because one thing is their Crescent Bank investment, which they put $19 million in. They said they earned $6 million on that for their, you know, off their state this year. Um, in earnings. I, in earnings. I don't know if they got it, but that was kind of their share of the pie. It's hard to identify what that stake is worth without any insights into Crescent Bank's business. Was that like a one-time bump uh, mm -hmm. in earnings because they use car sales since Crescent Bank is exposed to that? I don't know. It's, it's hard to value. I think you. one thing to note, though, is they did say that they have the at the money offering always open and they have the buyback always available. Yeah. So that mm -hmm. kind of gives them a range. If they're buying back stock, that's probably telling you that they think that's undervalued. If they're doing the at the money offering, that's probably telling you they think they're above some sort of intrinsic value. I believe they did a tad of it when they're in like the 30 to $40 range last quarter or earlier this year. I forget. But part they have that open. I think that can give you a range, but either than that, it's a wide range. It's it's more of a bet on management, but you can kind of sum it up rough ranges of what, what everything's worth. But even with the at the money offering, like we saw this when the, so someone at the meeting asked a question, like you did a 
you didn't offer it at a price that was lower than the stock price. Like, I, I didn't like that. And it's like, yeah. well, it depends <laughs> what they can invest, like what return they can get with that money. Yeah. Um, like if, if they see a huge opportunity in fiber and they think, well, we should just raise money. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, it's, it, it's like hard to just say like, it's above intrinsic value if they do an at the money offering, because if they do that at the money offering, because they think it's a great time to invest, then it might not be necessarily above their yeah. estimate of value. And if intrinsic value is going to grow at hopefully 15% a year, which I think they said is some sort of rough target they they, they go after. Um, and they, they said that's a good target. Someone asked yeah. them like, how are you going to achieve 15% per year? He's like, well, uh, like, I don't know where we, you know, 15% per year. Yeah. That seems like a, a reasonable target to hit. I think that's not out of the, out of the question. So. Yeah, I would say definitely don't just look at book value. I mean, I think we can say that for sure. Like that can yeah. just, especially right now with the SPAC, it can be misleading. And in general, it can be misleading, especially with all the depreciation they do. I mean, with Billboard and Fiverr being so big, but both those businesses have so much depreciation. Mm -hmm. It's it's going to really understate that. Cash flow is probably a good one though. I think if you look at the Billboard and Fiverr, how much cash those are generating, that can be pretty easy to look at though. It's tough, but having it be so difficult to value is kind of an opportunity sure yeah. since you can't well, just screen for it yeah i mean when you get like knee knee jerk reactions from algorithmic buyers and sellers like when you have high frequency trading firms that are diving into these like sometimes you get some really wild uh yeah <laughs> kind of runs in boston omaha's shares right where it, it it, it's just the last uh, couple of months has been really interesting to watch happen. And I think this is sort of as the market kind of catches up to the reality of the value of the shares is that uh, you have institutional buyers kind of, you know, gradually stepping in and adding to their stakes. And I think uh, one of the solutions as an investor is, is to try not to get too caught up in finding a per, you know, in, in, perfectly measuring the value of the consolidated business, right? This is yeah. the kind of business that I don't mind just continuously adding to my stake over time, especially, you know, if I see kind of an unusual plunge or, uh, you're just dollar cost average your way. And I don't worry too much about it. And I kind of, I hesitate to use the the phrase, but I, I have a lot of faith in management that they're going to be making moves that are in both their best interest and the interest of their shareholders, because pretty much most of their personal wealth is tied up in this business. And they are in it for the long term. This is something that they're looking at. You know, They're thinking about what they want this business to be 20 or 30 years from now. And, uh, and this, is, this is one of those companies where I think you know, it'll, it'll almost feel silly in a decade to look back and be like, wow, I was really, I was really tied up about whether to buy at 25 or 30. Yeah. You know, with, with shares sitting at 600 or something. Um, you know, I think it becomes one of those, uh, one of those businesses that just steadily increases its value. Um, the, the actual, uh, book value of the business, the intrinsic value, uh, of the business is what I was trying to say. Um, over time, I think just continues to steadily climb as they take advantage of these opportunities to put their capital to work. Yeah. And now we have been pretty bullish. So we should disclose that as we were at the shareholder meeting, uh, we were all shareholders. So you should know that we're uh, definitely biased towards them. However, we should talk about any sort of worries we might have. What's the biggest worry you have with the company right now? We'll start with Ryan. I'm going to steal mine from one of the other shareholders that was at the meeting. And I guess they, they've kind of um, overcome this shareholder concern for me, which is like, it, once you go to the meeting, you really notice that like this, this is a bet on Adam and Alex, and it's a bet that they are able to create deals from here on out. Because I mean, yeah, you could just look at the businesses that are already under their umbrella, but really it's what are they going to do with the capital that they get from those? Yep. And so the big concern that this other shareholder expressed was for a small holding company like this, a huge problem is, are they going to get the deal flow to be able to make opportunities like that? And mm -hmm. my worries were kind of quelled at the meeting, which was I think they have uh, it's kind of the charisma, uh, the capital, and the network to be able to keep making deals happen. Um, yeah. And so I guess that was my biggest concern, but yeah. it was it was it, 
It's interesting how they stumbled across these deals too, right? You know, I was in the the lobby of the hotel talking to one of their old college friends and he's like, oh yeah, I run a, uh, I, I won't give too many details about that, but he was telling me how he introduced them just casually years ago to the CEO of one of the companies that they own a minority stake in. And uh, it's just sort of how that happens. It's like, oh, hey, meet this guy. And they say, hey, maybe we could do business. I really like what you do. And and I, I think uh, that's part of what's sort of refreshing about the way they do business is, is it seems like they just, they, they kind of let deals happen. And it's not like they're making deals because they're desperate for somewhere to put money to work. I think it just happens. And they've got the, these things, um, you know, given what they do, you know, sometimes you might be approached. Uh, uh, you know, I think at a certain point, these deals start to happen because people come to you and ask and let you, you don't have to swing at any pitch if you don't want to. That's to borrow something from Uncle Warren, right? Uh, you don't have to swing, you know, at any pitch. And um, at a certain point, I think you're going to have um, people kind of taking notice that they are astute deal makers and say, I've got a deal for you. And they can say yes or no. And, uh, you know, Markel, Tom Gaynor is the uh, co-CEO and chief investment officer of Markel. And he said, you know, we're in a unique point a couple of years ago He's where people approach us with deals. And sometimes they're very good deals. I think they're, uh, they bought an ornamental plant company uh, that way. And uh, people say, would you like to buy our business? And you kind of become this sort of preferred buyer for a lot of these companies that are looking for a permanent home. And uh, yeah, that's to seg into segue into to what we were talking about. Our biggest worry is uh, for me, maybe it's that key man risk. What happens, uh, you know, if something happens to Adam or Alex, right? They're they're sort of this. Uh, you, you hate to beat the comparison to death, but the the Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger uh, combination, uh, and uh, it would be really unfortunate if. If uh, if if either of them were to choose to leave, or you know something uh, happened health wise or something, uh, that would be that'd be pretty bad. But I think that's maybe my biggest worry. I really really trust what this company's doing. Yeah, uh, and I, I think they they're very methodical and logical about the way they do business and the way they put capital to work. Yeah, it's like yeah, I I know we've already made the comparison too many times, but it's like <laughs> I would not have wanted to own some textile mill uh if if it were just a textile mill right people own that because warren was in charge um or warren was taking care of their capital it's like i don't know how excited i'd be i mean i do like the businesses that are under bus and omaha's umbrella but i don't know they're a little bit better than textiles yeah i don't know if i'd be <laughs> clamoring for it for just a billboard business or clamoring for just a plain old fiber business i mean they are good businesses but it wouldn't have piqued my interest as much as uh, their shareholder letters do. Yeah, for sure. I'd say going off of that key man risk, the only thing I worry about is the way they own the company. Um, so if for anyone that doesn't know, it's a bit complicated. I think I forget the names. I forget who is who, but uh, maybe they have the name on here. Magnolia, Magnolia Fund. Uh, or sorry, Magnolia Group is where, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's, it's Alex, right? No, it's Adam that owns it through that, right, Steve? Adam owns it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it, the, it, it is, it's both of their like holdings are in that. Okay. Um, and, and the I can't remember the structure exactly, but yeah, Magnolia Holdings, I think was originally Adam's uh, sort of fund. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, they, they, I think Alex had one as well, but I believe they like transferred the shares over. So they're all kind of in one place. Yeah, so if bold, you look at in, yeah. institutional holdings, you'll see like, wow, what's this company that owns, you know, 80% or 40, you know, I can't remember what the percentage is. Uh, and that's, that's Magnolia and that's because they own so much of it. But yeah, when with that, you know, again, it would be a bit cleaner if it was through the fund and I don't think it's a big deal and I'm not a, uh, I don't think I'm trying to read the tea leaves too hard here, but I did look at their last 13F and they did sell a bit of the Boston Oma, of Boston Oma in that. That was a bit of a concern. They had never done that before. I'm sure it's fine. Uh, that doesn't seem like they have anything, but I don't know. I would just be watching the Magnolia Fund 13F to see what they do. I don't think it's a giant concern, but that's something I'm watching out for just because it's not as clean of an ownership stake. I wonder... Yeah. I also worry about the Magnolia Fund also owns things that aren't Boston Omaha. So mm-hmm. I worry sometimes where their time's focused, but I don't think it's a giant concern. 
Yeah, I think Boulderado Holdings or something was the other one. I think there might still be a chunk yeah. of shares held over there too. So if you look look at their institutional investments, and you'll see it's pretty evident which one's there. So yeah, the other, I guess the other only slight concern that I'd have, and maybe this is my own problem, not a problem for the company, is the complexity of some of the deals and the accounting might lead to me missing something that could be important uh, or yeah. some sort of risk. I guess. I just don't have a complete understanding for all of them, but yeah, that's what you gotta, yeah. Trust the management. All right. Let's not go too long. Let's wrap things up. What part of the business are you most excited for? It says it's my turn on this one. I, this is a tough one, but I think I'm going to choose fiber. Um, I think that's maybe Ryan's too, but we'll, uh, we'll go with Steve. What's your favorite part of the Boston Omaha business? Oh man. Um, you know, it's funny, but I, I think maybe the, the most intriguing piece of Boston Omaha right now might be, um, might be the sky Harbor deal. Um, yeah, both due to a combination of the, the, the favorable terms they've gotten to own a chunk of this business. Like as so often we talk about investing in spec companies that were, you know, born out of a spec transaction, right? A spec merger. And, uh, seldom do we talk about investing in the actual sponsor of that SPAC transaction. And uh, one of the risks that I talk about in when I'm at Seven Investing and I pick a company that was a SPAC merger as one of my recommendations, one of the risks I talk about is how much of the company did they give away to the sponsor of the SPAC? Because it's not a, you know, it's not a free lunch, right? And um, so uh, to be on the other side of that and say, well, how much of this company did Boston Omaha get? Uh, and, and they're, generally pretty favorable terms. So I'm excited about just the fact that they put this capital to work. And uh, if if Sky Harbor then succeeds, uh, it just gets even better from there for Boston Omaha. So I think maybe that's my, my most exciting, but there's, there's work to be done to prove that they can execute. That's the, that's the big risk there is execution risk uh, for Sky Harbor after that. Right. Ryan, what what was your favorite? I'm going to go with Sky Harbor. Also, I think Part of the reason I like it is that you're going to get a lot of visibility since they'll be a public company. And so it'll be mm-hmm. really easy to track their progress. And it's uh, more fun. <laughs> it is more fun. It's a little, I would also characterize it as a little more fun than fiber. Um, fiber is great and, though. I wish I had it. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and their growth plans are ambitious. So mm-hmm. you can kind of, you know, hold them to that and see like, okay. are they are they going to meet those metrics that they put out? Um, and, and I guess we'll see here in the next few years. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Steve, uh, thank you for joining us today. Where can people find you? You mentioned seven investing people that know the show, uh, know that we have the promo relationship. So they probably heard us talk about it before, but yeah. you know, what do you do there? What's your kind of niche, uh, at seven investing? Yeah. Seven investing. We, we pick stocks, right? Um, we, we provide seven stock recommendations every single month. We write up detailed reports on them. And, and, uh, and then we also pick, we call them our, our best buys from all of our old recommendations. We tell you which of our old recs that we like the most every month and, and uh, pretty fun service provide company updates. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the price for seven investing is 49 bucks a month or three ninety nine a year. And uh, that's what we do. We just, we, we make recommendations and then we track their performance. So uh, they're all, you know, it's long-term stuff. It's not anything that you're going to be focusing on day trading, like, okay, buy this stock this week and sell it three weeks later. Uh, that's not how we work. We, we try and generate uh, outsized returns over periods of years. And, and uh, that's served me pretty well so far. So uh, I love our team and seveninvesting.com is where you find us. All right. Yeah. Great collection of research reports. Maybe north of 100 now. I think definitely north of 100. Yeah, um, I think so we've got I 140 maybe on the, the scorecard now. But Yeah. If you go on there and you can't find something you like, I mean, you're just, you got to wind, wind your horizons. They're, uh, all right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.